welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. We've been looking at the Elijah message beginning last week, and we're going to do a series on the Elijah message over the course of these few weeks in the summer months. And last week we learned that it was the primary work of Elijah to bring a message from God that would reconcile alienated hearts of Israel back to God, because they were certainly alienated from God, weren't they? Because they were pursuing Baal worship, which was nothing more than self-worship. We read that in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 39, that when Elijah called them before the God of heaven up on Mount Carmel, that he rebuilt the altar representing the cross of Jesus Christ, and he gathered all of Israel around that altar. And then he made his appeal to the God of heaven to show who was the true God. The consequence of that was that the prophets of Baal were unsuccessful in bringing fire down from heaven. But God did answer Elijah's prayer, and the fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice that represented Jesus, who would be the sin-bearer on the cross. And as a result, there was a great revival and reformation in Israel. We're told that all of the people fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. That was repentance. And that was the message that Elijah brought to ancient Israel. Unfortunately, Elijah didn't stick around long enough to help the people to lead them in their revival and reformation because that revival and reformation was based on the true new covenant. But he got afraid, didn't he, of the consequences of what had happened. He got afraid of Jezebel, and he ran from her when the people needed leadership because they were just babies beginning to understand the everlasting covenant. He should have held his ground and led the people so that the the revival would have been a lasting one. Well, it's from Elijah that we learn from Malachi that God is going to send to his people in these last days an Elijah message. We read about it in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, God prophesies, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. What that is, is the reconciliation of hearts. And it begins in the family. And when alienated hearts are turned to God, then that means that families are going to be reconciled. I know homes that are just broken up because children have said, I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. Maybe you know families like that too. There's such alienation in places where there should be great bonding and intimacy, but there isn't. And the 
message of revival and reformation that God wants to bring to his people in the last days is very similar to what Elijah did in his day. And so it behooves us to understand the basis of the proclamation of Elijah, the everlasting covenant, the new covenant, so that we can share that wonderful good news. It's heartwarming news with others. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Dear Father, as we begin our Bible, little Bible study this morning, we pray that you will reveal the secret of your covenant to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question this morning is, what is the new covenant? Simply, it is God's promises to you and to me. He gave them, first of all, to Abraham. He gave to Abraham in the Old Testament what we understand as the new covenant. The first step in understanding the new covenant is to see that when God makes a promise, it is always, God makes a covenant, it is always a promise on his part. Paul tells us that God's covenant with Abraham was his promise to him in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 17. So here you have Abraham who was called out of Babylon. He was a pagan, an unbeliever. And we're told in Romans chapter 4 that he became the father of us all when he chose to believe those promises which God gave to him. We read about this in Romans chapter 4. Verse 16, it says, It is of faith that it might be according to the grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. The seed meaning that's all of us, not only to those who are of the, natu- of the law, which would be the natural descendants of the literal Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, the father of many nations. If you'll open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, you'll see that God promised to Abraham seven wonderful blessings. Seven wonderful promises. Beginning there in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2, I will make you a great nation, God promises. I will bless you, number 2, And make your name great, number three. Number four, and you shall be a blessing. Number five, I will bless those who bless you. Number six, and I will curse him who curses you. Number seven, and you, all of the families of the earth, shall be blessed. Then God renewed all of those promises again in chapter 15, when God called Abraham out to view the sky at night. And one night he said, Abraham, can you count all of the stars that are up there in the heavens? And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Wow, there's a lot of stars out there in the heavens, isn't there? And then as you read the entire story there in the book of Genesis, chapters 12 through 19, the surprising fact emerges that God never asked Abraham to make any promise in return. You see, God's new covenant is totally one-sided. And so Abraham did the one right thing, the only thing that he could do in light of God's promise. You want to see what it is? Look at Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. 
Genesis 15, verse 6. It says, He believed in the Lord, and the Lord, or he counted it to him for righteousness. And that's all that God asks us to do, is to believe his promise to us. You know, when uh, someone gives you a gift, what does your, did your mother teach you you should say? And that's the same as saying, Amen. For amen means, Lord, I believe what you have promised, so be it. I want to experience that, so be it. Your forgiveness of sins, your very life, which is your blessing to me. And that is all that God has asked any of us to do, just to believe it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if you do everything just right, you'll have everlasting life. That if you make a right promise to God, you'll have everlasting God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, amen, says amen, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So you can see that our promises do not enter into God's covenant at all. They are his one-sided promise to us And those who worry that salvation by grace through faith alone won't produce enough works need to remember that Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, that faith, true faith, in this wonderful gift always works by love. Paul says that. True faith always works by love. Now, God's covenant is always a one-sided promise on his part, Because he knows about our nature. God does not believe in our human nature capable of producing any good. He knows that. And therefore, he has given a promise to us that we may become partakers of his divine nature. And he believes that his divine nature, so long as we don't hinder it, will produce obedience to all of his commandments. God doesn't ask us to make promises to him because he knows our nature and he knows that we cannot keep our promises to him. When we make promises, uh, the servant of the Lord says in the book Steps to Christ that all of our promises are like ropes of sand. And then when we see that we have broken our promises to God, it causes us to spiral downward and have less confidence in ourselves so that we get into this I'm-no-good kind of thinking and I'm not cut out to go to heaven kind of thinking. And God knows this about our nature. Go to Galatians, rather, chapter 3 and verse 17, and you will see there how Paul speaks of God's covenant as his promise. God's covenant and his promise are identical. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed, meaning Christ, were the promises made. And verse 17, And this I say, that the law, coming in of the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. Now, that's a Bible definition of God's covenant, isn't it? 
It says that it's God's promise. Amen. It says that it's God's promise. Romans chapter 4, Paul says that it's God's promise. The Old Covenant, on the other hand, gives birth and it genders to bondage, to enslavement. It, Paul says that in Galatians 4.24. Some people in church even give up in despair, and many go on through their so-called Christian experience under a constant cloud of discouragement because they think that God's covenant is when they promise to him to do just everything just right. Well, the confusion really comes about the two covenants can be solved very simply, and the problem concerns the law that was given at Mount Sinai. Does the Ten Commandments, which God gave at Mount Sinai, alter the new covenant that was the straightforward promise of God to Abraham and so to us? The Apostle Paul was the first Israelite who clearly understood the function of the law and of the two covenants in the light of Israel's up and down discouraging Old Testament history. They sometimes had revival, but it just didn't last. Why not? Sometimes there was revival and reformation, and then it was lost, and they spiraled down into more worshiping of the pagan gods around them. And then a prophet like Elijah would come along, and there was a real high, and then there was a downward motion again. Well, Paul was the first one to understand why those ups and downs. In several simple steps in Galatians, Paul clarifies for us this confusion between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 14, he talks about the blessing of Abraham, which is to come to everyone. And he says that the blessing of Abraham is that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, we are told that it is the love of Christ, that the Holy Spirit sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. See, that's the righteousness of God. So the wonderful promise of Abraham, the blessing to Abraham was that he, when he said amen, he received the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon his life. And he was made conformable to the law of God without God ever having to write out the Ten Commandments on paper or stone because God just wrote it for him on his heart and upon his mind. Then Paul says that a will or a covenant that anyone makes, even God's, cannot be annulled or added to once the testator dies. In God's will or covenant, he promised, and then he swore it with a solemn oath, to give Abraham the whole earth for an everlasting inheritance. So God promised to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land and you're going to have it forever in perpetuity. Well, you come up with a good question in your mind right now. You're saying, well, he's dead, <laughs> and he's in his grave. Where is this promise that he would have this land in perpetuity? Well, you're asking a good question, so that the only way by which God's promise to Abraham can be fulfilled is by the resurrection from the dead at Jesus' second coming. 
Abraham is going to be resurrected from the dead. He will go to heaven and the new earth, which he will inherit forever and ever, via the underground route of the resurrection. But you see, before Abraham died, he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, which means that he was justified by faith. That means he actually became righteous through the divine nature of Jesus. He believed in that, you see. And that fitted him for life on the eternal, in the, in the new earth, but it will be via the resurrection. So the essence of the new covenant is righteousness by faith. Anyone who inherits the new earth will be righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. That will fit them for eternal life in the eternal new earth. Now, when we make a covenant, whenever you make a, 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 an agreement with someone here, to maybe to do some work on your kitchen or on your house, uh, it's a contract. Ever enter into a bargain with an outfit to do some work for your house? Uh, you know, it implies mutual obligations, doesn't it? You say in this contract, okay, I want this kind of decoration, you know, and I want this kind of... Uh, you know, surface on my counters, and I want this kind of surface on the floor, and these kinds of appliances, and in, in consideration of that work that's being done in my kitchen, I will give you such and such amount of money. So for us, covenants are bargains and contracts. But with God, he never enters into a bargain for salvation with you and me. He doesn't enter into contracts with us. His covenant is his one-sided promise to us. And the appropriate thing for you to do is, as your mother taught you, to give a heartfelt thank you and amen to his promise. God explicitly said that his promise was made to Abraham's descendant. We just read it there in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. His descendant was the singular seed who is... Christ, right? So God made a promise to Abraham's seed who was Christ. Now, we are not left out of this promise, but we come into the picture only as being in Christ by adoption through faith. Since God made his solemn promise to Abraham, and he not only promised to Abraham, but he swore by his very life, he took out an oath, that nothing under heaven could change one iota of what he had given uh, in that promise so that not even the giving of the ten, ten Commandments on Mount Sinai by writing them on tables of stone could change God's promise. God gave the Ten Commandments 430 years at Mount Sinai, years after Abraham's time, but it could not be an extra additional feature in the least put into the new covenant. It could not invalidate in the least God's one-sided sworn oath and promise to him. If the inheritance, Galatians 3.18, is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise, Paul says. The new covenant doesn't specialize in telling us what to do, but it tells us what to believe. And as you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive his life. And what is Jesus' life? Jesus delighted to do the will of his Father, didn't he? 
And the will of his Father was the Father's commandments. And so as you believe in Jesus, you get all of him, the fullness of Christ, and you get his life, and that is the delight to do his Father's will, his Father's commandments. Then Paul asked the logical question that everybody asks, why then did God speak the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai? Well, it certainly was a terror-inducing uh, terror demonstration with lightning and earthquake and fire, and a boundary was put around the mountain, and the people were told not to cross the boundary for fear of losing their life. God didn't need to frighten Abraham out of his wits like that. All that God had to do with Abraham, because Abraham said, thank you, Abraham said, amen, all that God had to do with Abraham was to write his Ten Commandments upon Abraham's heart as being so much good news, wonderful promises. And then Abraham found it his greatest joy to obey God, to keep his commandments. Why not do, why didn't God do the same thing for Israel when they were gathered there at Mount Sinai on their way to the promised land? Why didn't God just write his law upon their hearts and minds instead of having this great thunder and lightning and then the writing of his Ten Commandments with his finger on tables of stone? Why did God do it that way instead of the way he had did it with Abraham? Because that would have solved all of the problems that Israel had to meet ever afterward. Now, Paul explains the reason why the law had to be written in stone. I'm going to give you a moment to look up Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19 because Paul is the first one to understand the history of his people and the, their relationship to the Ten Commandments and Mount Sinai and these two covenants. He explains it here. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. It says, The law was added because of trans." Gresham's. The law was added because of what? What is that? That's sin, isn't it? That's unbelief, isn't it? The law was added because of transgressions till the seed, and who have we learned the seed is? That's Christ, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Now this word, the law was added, this word added means emphasized, underlined. How many of you have a computer? And if you want to take a word and really let it stand out in boldness, what do you do? You double-click on it, and then you put Control-B, and that makes it bold letters, doesn't it? And boy, that just stands out on the page. Well, that is why God added the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, because of some sin on the part of Israel, and God wanted to put it in bold letters. That's why he wrote his Ten Commandment law on stone at Mount Sinai. Well, what were the transgressions here on the part of Israel that made this new emphasizing, this new emboldedness, this new underlining necessary? The answer to this question is the forming of the Old Covenant. That's the answer. So before Israel ever got to the fire and the thunder and the brimstone and the lightning 
on Mount Sinai and the writing of the Ten Commandments on stone there in Exodus chapter 20, we find that Israel had already made the mistake in Genesis or Exodus 19. Go there. Go to Exodus chapter 19. They had already made the mistake of forming their old covenant. They wanted to substitute it for God's new or everlasting covenant. And this is a very fascinating story, for we can see ourselves in it. When the people gathered at Mount Sinai, God told Moses, I want you to renew to them the same new covenant promises that I made to their father Abraham. So, in Exodus 19, and verse 5, it says, Tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. When he said, my covenant, he was referring to the same covenant that he had made with their father, Abraham, which was his one-sided promise. God said, keep my covenant. He said, well, that is, he said, cherish it. The Hebrew word there, the Hebrew verb, is shamar. The same word that is used in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, where God tells Adam and Eve to keep the Garden of Eden. Well, it doesn't make sense, does it, that Adam and Eve were to obey the Garden of Eden? Does it? Well, then the word shamar means God was telling them, treasure it. The Garden of Eden was a place to treasure, wasn't it? And so likewise, God is inviting them to treasure his covenant. And there is really kind of a play on words going on here where God says, As you treasure my covenant, you will become my treasured people. You see, because God loves it when people believe his promise, they treasure his promise, and he just treasures them back as his people. That's kind of the play on words here. It makes God happy when people believe his promise. What do you say about that? makes him happy when they believe his promise. Likewise, the Hebrew verb for obey my voice that we just read here, the Hebrew word is shemeah, and interestingly, in the Old Testament, this word is the word here, and it's used 760 times in the Old Testament. That's a whole lot of times, isn't it? Here, it means here. And 160 times, it's translated to hearken. Only 81 times is the word shemeah mean obey. So the root meaning of this word obey, it has the idea of leaning down real low so that you can hear what's being said. You kind of bend your... You know, I'm getting that place where I have to lean into people now, you know, to hear. And how about you as teachers and parents? Don't you know that the first step in getting your children to obey is, first of all, they have to listen to what you're saying, right? Do they always listen? Their heads are somewhere off, a thousand miles away, aren't they? So God's big problem is to get them to listen 
So God is really saying here, if you will listen to my voice and cherish or treasure the promise I have made to your father Abraham, you will be a special treasure to me above all people. That's what God is saying in this verse. You're going to be the head. You're not going to be the tail on this world. There's not going to be any need for a great world empires to come along and give you such fits and problems like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Grecians and the Persians and the Romans who will tread down the earth and possess you because you will be above all of the nations. And Israel will embody the truths of righteousness by faith. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, he says in Exodus 19 and verse 6. Israel's temple then would outdo and outlast the Greek Parthenon, was his promise to them. But did Israel understand? Israel did not understand. They did not have the faith of their father Abraham. They were mired in legalistic thinking, and they made an empty promise Something that God never asked Abraham to do. You want to see it in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 8. This was their promise. All that the Lord has spoken we will do, is what they said. That was their promise, their covenant. And they formed, and that was their old covenant. That is the old covenant. Man's promises to do everything just right as God has outlined it. Well, what is God going to do? What can he do? If they're not going to keep step with him and listen to what and to treasure his covenant, what can he do? God must humble himself to keep step with them. And as a consequence, there's going to be a long detour that will become inevitable for Israel. And it was finally Paul who saw the deep significance of this old covenant promise of the people. I give you a moment to turn to Galatians chapter 3 and verses 21 through 24. And let's read it because Paul is the first one to understand the ups and downs of Israel's history in relationship to the law and the two covenants. And he explains it right here in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21. It reads... Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture was confined, has confined all under sin, just as in a prison of our own choosing, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before believing or faith came, we were kept under the guard by the law, kept for the faith, the faith of Jesus, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That word tutor means a stern, harsh disciplinarian. You see, Paul saw the old covenant that the people voluntarily put themselves under by their promise, all that the Lord has said we will do. 
He saw it as functioning as a stern disciplinarian, a policeman, if you please, keeping the people of Israel under custody until such time as they could find their freedom again in the kind of justification by faith which their father Abraham enjoyed by believing God's promise, his new covenant. And so, friends, Israel, they brought the old covenant upon themselves. God must let them learn through their own history how vain were their promises to keep his law. The law written in tables of stone imposed upon them a burden of what they ought to be. It was a never-ending obligation that they could not fulfill, never giving liberty, but always threatening them with punishment if not kept perfectly. It must serve in this long national detour now as a kind of correctional officer in the state prison driving them under the law until at last they come to the experience of their father Abraham to be justified by faith and not by their works of the law. Thus, the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant is simply this. Who makes the promises? So I will ask you, whose promise is the new covenant? It's God's promise. Whose promise is the old covenant? It's the promise of the people, isn't it? And the keeping of the promise depends entirely upon who is making it. Could the people keep their promise? By the time God had finished writing the Ten Commandments on stone and Moses brought them down from above, what had happened to their promise? They were already worshiping idols and images at the foot of the mountain, weren't they? They couldn't keep their own promises. See, in the New Covenant, the foundation of God's promise is the rock, Christ Jesus. In Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Our salvation and Israel's does not depend on our making promises to God or keeping them, but on our believing his promises to us. Believing God's new covenant promise delivers us from the yoke of bondage. Paul speaks of, no longer do we serve God through fear of punishment or even from hoping of some great reward. The new covenant delivers from the constant sense of futility, that nagging sense of, I ought to do this. I must be more faithful. I must do better. I must be more unselfish. I must study more. I must read my Bible more. I must give more offerings. All of these promises without end. All of this sense of compulsion by fear that if I don't, I won't go to heaven and I'll go to hell. You know, that's what it means to be under the law. But the new covenant motivation under grace, you know what it means to be under grace? It means to be under the motivation of the agape love of God. The agape love of God. So this tutor or jailer of the old covenant drove Israel through the centuries in a relentless history, ups and downs from Sinai all the way through until 
the time that Jesus walked this earth, and the very people who should have recognized their new covenant promiser, they didn't see him as the covenant maker, and they crucified him. His own people had a big part to play with that because they didn't recognize him, because they had the old covenant in their mind. And the prophets and the judges and the kings tried earnestly but in vain to bring some permanent reformation and revival to ancient Israel. And the prophet Samuel had a blessed ministry, but it ended in the people clamoring not for God to be the king over them, but they wanted to have their own king like all the rest of the nations. So even the prophet Samuel's revival and reformation petered out. And Saul who was chosen to be their first king. Nearly ruined the nation, didn't he? King Saul. David probably believed in the new covenant, the everlasting covenant. And then you have such kings as Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah, and finally, who is called good king Josiah. You've heard of him. He tried his utmost to bring the people back into a right course, But all of these kings, their revivals always were frustrated by the old covenant mentality that produced backsliding and apostasy and Baal worship and self-worship. And finally, Josiah was the last good king of Judah. He was determined to do everything just right according as the spirit of prophecy of his day recorded in the writings of Moses just as they were enjoined there in the blueprint, but he could not save the nation from ultimate ruin. But the youthful king was in his 30s, and he failed. His revival, his reformation, it came to naught, for he rejected the living demonstration of God's spirit of prophecy in the message that came to him through the most unlikely source that he could think of, and that was the mouth of the pagan Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, a warning to us how easily we can reject divine truth. You can read about that in Second Chronicles chapter 35 and verses 20 through 25, how good King Josiah did not perceive the spirit of prophecy speaking to him because he rejected its source, the king of Egypt. By the way, you know that the beginning of apostasy is the rejection of the spirit of prophecy and the end of apostasy, the omega. The alpha of apostasy is the rejection of the spirit of prophecy and the end of it, the omega, is also the rejection of the spirit of prophecy. And that should be very sobering to us that we do not take seriously what the servant of the Lord has taught us and told us in the writings that we have readily at hand. From Josiah, it was old covenant history downhill all the way for God's people until King Zedekiah, Jerusalem and their beautiful temple had to be destroyed. The people had to be taken into captivity to Babylon. What a vivid demonstration of how the old covenant gives birth to bondage. They never truly recovered the new covenant until they finally lost their nationhood through the crucifixion of the Messiah and the rejection of his apostles. And in Galatians and Romans, Paul correctly delineates their history 
which he says was written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages are come. Well, what do these two covenants mean to us today? What can we learn? First of all, that these two covenants are not hemmed in by time, as though people living anciently were automatically under the old covenant, and we today automatically live under the new covenant. There are people in the Old Testament times who lived under the new covenant. Amen? Abraham was one, for example. Moses was another, because he wrote these books that give us this history. He understood the new covenant. And today, we can be living under the old covenant if we don't clearly understand and believe the freedom-giving gospel. How many of you like to go out to eat to a restaurant where there's a gourmet chef that can prepare a delicious seven-course dinner with good, wholesome food? But if he puts a tiny amount, just a speck of arsenic in it, what does that do to all that gourmet food? It spoils it, doesn't it? Even if it doesn't kill us, it's certainly going to cause some paralysis and dumb thinking. Our heads are going to go stupid. Even a tiny amount, dear friends, of old covenant ideas mixed in with otherwise gospel concepts can paralyze a healthy spiritual experience and produce lukewarmness. That so characterizes the church in these last days. Lukewarmness in his people is a mixture of hot and cold that produces the nausea that Jesus says makes him so sick at his stomach that he is about to hurl, he says in Revelation 3, 17 and 18. And the healing can only come through a full recovery of the new covenant truth of the gospel. You know, it's astonishing how old covenant ideas can penetrate into our thinking. You just take some of our beautiful hymns, for example, like that beautiful one there that says that it has the title, O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. God doesn't ask us to make promises to him, but we can change that into a new covenant hymn by simply changing one word. So it reads, O Jesus, I have chosen to serve thee to the end. You see, well-meaning teachers in our Sabbath school and our pathfinders can fasten innocent children into Old Covenant spiritual bondage by inducing them to make promises to God which he has never asked them to do. They promise, and then later, perhaps, in forgetfulness, they break their promise And then the syndrome of bondage develops into spiritual discouragement. And parents sometimes just weep their eyes out, wondering why are we losing so many youth who get discouraged spiritually and leave the church? All kinds of tragedies can develop in an atmosphere that is permeated with old covenant Christian experience. The good news is, friends, that repentance is possible. Repentance is possible, and it is a gift that Jesus is giving to his Laodicean church. You know, just take, for example, Abraham and Sarah. They waded through this discouragement of old covenant thinking. His marriage, you, you remember that Sarah got impatient with the Lord's promise that he, she and Abraham were going to have a son through whom the promise would be given. And so she said, well, let's help the Lord out here with his promise. And uh, I give you Hagar, my servant. 
And whatever comes from that, the Lord will surely bless, and the promise will come through that seed. And so as a consequence, you have Ishmael being born through Hagar, don't you? And oh my, there was all kinds of heartache that came from that. That was old covenant thinking on the part of Sarah and Abraham. Sarah was bitter against the Lord. She said, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. This was her complaint to the Lord. Her solution, the old covenant idea of adopting Ishmael as her son so as to help God fulfill his promise. But finally, we read. And look up Hebrews 11, verse 11. Look at Hebrews 11, 11, because there's a lot of encouragement here for those who have been mired in old covenant thinking. We read here in Hebrews 11, 11, that Sarah had an experience of repentance. And she had a new covenant repentance. Her heart was melted somehow by the grace of God. It says, by faith, Sarah conceived. See that? By faith in God's promise, she conceived. Finally, Abraham's faith triumphed when he offered up Isaac as an object lesson, sensing a little of what it costs the heavenly father to offer up his only son. Correctly understood, the message of the new covenant is part of the light, which is to lighten the earth with God's glory in the closing hours of this world's history. It is part of that Elijah message that is good news to you as well as to the world. And the message is going to be centered in a true understanding of righteousness by faith, which alone can prepare God's people for the final time of trouble. Many people think that the only way to prepare for Jesus' coming is if they get their lives in line and obey all the commandments, just so and so. We promise, Lord, we're going to obey your commandments. That's all old covenant thinking. The only way to truly obey God's commandments is to believe Jesus Christ and to let his life flow through you unhindered, and then you will have one who delights to do the will of his Father. All of God's biddings will become enablings. I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but in light of the new covenant, the Ten Commandments are not negative whatsoever. They are all positive promises from God. If you have thought of them as negative as I have, the Lord gives you repentance so that you will change your mind and see them as all positive promises from him. Nothing will be able to stop them as we share this good news with our evangelical friends, as we share it with the world. Once this wonderful message of the everlasting covenant sinks into our hearts and minds and we experience it and share it with others, it will be called the call to Babylon to come out of her, my people. Because the 144,000, those who greet Jesus when he comes, will be constrained by the love of Christ. And they will not be constrained by saying, oh, we've got to do this or else we're going to get lost and we're going to go to hell. We want to do this because we're going to go to heaven. They will have a, a completely different outlook on obedience and what that means. And it will be his love that will motivate them to share that good news with others. That will be the call to come out of her, my people, out of Babylon. Dear Father in heaven, we, can, we thank you for this Elijah message that 
turns alienated hearts to you. Our hearts, first of all, need to be turned to you. Our old stubbornness, our actual disobedience and and, uh, alienation from you needs to be reconciled by this Elijah message. There are members of our family who need to be reconciled to each other. Husbands and wives need this message of reconciliation, this message of love. This is something that Jesus is giving to us from his high priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, this wonderful gift of love and reconciliation of hearts. This is the Elijah message to us today. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.